0: there is no one like bruce ario and there never will be because he has his own little corner of the universe in these two books that i've edited of almost 600 poems that there's not there's no one like he isn't just like uh, a lot of these people who you know they have this that or the other thing wrong with them or they play up for sympathies uh because of they're from this group or from this religious group or or whatever it might be um uh bruce bruce is First and foremost, a great poet and great writer. And secondarily, he's an, he's an, you can he'll probably become, I think, an avatar of mental ills if he, his reputation can get out there. They will say, well, if a man who had, you know, all the things we've listed that went wrong in his life, if he can come and do this, you know, people say, well, can't you be like Bruce Ario? And I think that's one of the things that's important, but it's not nearly as important as he's a great artist first and foremost.
1: my god
2: hello everyone welcome to artifact number 35 we're going to be covering on this show the life and times of bruce ario a great minneapolis poet i'm joined by dan schneider of cosmoerica.com he is a Poet himself, and he recently put together the selected poems of Bruce Ario. We also have uh, Bruce Ario's brother, Joel Ario. I believe that uh, he is about two years Bruce's uh, senior, um, or maybe junior. I forgot what Bruce uh, said a little while ago. But yeah, we're going to be covering Bruce's bi- biography. I'm usually not too interested in the biography of artists, but um, you know, other people do find it very useful. And given the fact that we still have Bruce's relatives, people that he's known, right, this is going to be pretty important. And I, I also insisted on actually using some of Bruce's poems as sort of biographical backdrop. Um, we're not going to be analyzing them too much artistically, but uh, I think, you know, given the fact that Bruce died you know, fairly recently, uh, it was only 2022 that he passed away. Um, Like just going over some of these poems of his that I've never seen before, uh, I definitely do feel like I know him much better. uh, Even if I had, for instance, like had dozens of like personal one on one conversations with him, simply having the poems given how well crafted they are, how polished they are. Right, I really get a much deeper sense of who he is as a person, more so than just even off-the-cuff conversation. So I think this would be a very useful conversation for future historians and and people who write poetry themselves. Um, Maybe we could start with uh, Joel, if you want to give anything by way of introduction uh, about Bruce Ariel's life, um, anything that you find uh, relevant
1: and first of all thank you so much Alex and Dan for paying this attention to my my brother we knew always knew him to be a special uh brother and in, uh, in in the areas that you're teasing out here I think uh we didn't know as much as as you guys have uncovered and so it's uh, really really gratifying to see the time and effort you put into understanding Bruce's work and uh Bruce used to always say that uh he he, he most writers aren't famous in their own. Time and uh, he always had this aspiration that maybe he would be so. Maybe this will help uh, shine some more light on on his poetry because I will say that it was only after his death that I paid as much attention as I have to his writing. And I'm no literary critic, but I, but I have found it you know meaning in his work and appreciate the work that you guys are doing. I there are four boys in the family. I'm oldest. Bruce is next, and then he is a brother two years younger, and then a brother twelve years younger. So four boys grew up in. Minnesota, pretty traditional Minnesota type family, very athletically and outdoorsy kind of uh, uh, family. Bruce was always the most sensitive of the the four of us and, uh, you know, encountered some issues when he was in his late teenage years that led into a, you know, bouts with mental illness. And but he, uh, as, as we'll talk about, you know, went on to live a rich and very full life. And so look forward to talking to you guys about that.
0: Well, if, if I can just, as, just just for the record. So Joel is the oldest, then Bruce, then David, and then Kevin. Correct. Okay.
1: Yeah, the, birthday, the birth dates are, uh, this ours, I can't remember anybody's age anymore. So I'm born 1953, Bruce 55, David 57, and Kevin 65.
2: That's an interesting detail about the uh, sensitivity, uh, there's always this kind of like a desire among critics and historians to say, okay, well, let's go through this person's biography and try to understand, you know, what is it about their childhood that that cr- turned them into an artist, right? And uh, th- th- I think that's a kind of silly way to, to view things, right? There's so many random little variables that go into uh becoming an artist like it's almost as if if you change one variable no matter how minuscule you might very well not end up with an artist much less a, a great artist like Bruce was um but th- that sensitivity right uh th- that is probably relevant right because his best poetry often is highly personal right very often whenever there's a sort of i uh there uh, the pronoun i um you know, it's it's uh, it, it, it's it's both it's both emotionally charged as well, as sometimes a bit intellectual too. But that emotionalism turned out to be pretty important, right? He he has maybe what we would call, uh, I guess, in layman's terms, like a bit of a confessional style. Um, so that is an interesting detail about his upbringing. Um, Dan, if you want to uh, sort of say anything about Bruce by way of introduction,
0: well, I don't, I don't think you we could fall into the trap of thinking that if the I in the poems, or even the main character in his, as far as I know, only single great novel, City Boy, is him. Because I know Bruce told me that 95% of City Boy was what happened to him, but 5% or so he made up and uh, for, for dramatic uh, purposes and other, other things go along there. So I don't want to fall into that trap. And I know having read poems and having talked with Bruce and having him bro- brought poems, to the Uptown Poetry Group, um, yes, he would write about certain things and his beliefs and and uh, often things that happened to him, but it, it, it would be a task to try to separate what was something that actually happened to Bruce and something that he might have imagined while sitting on a bus throughout the poems, riding buses, because after the accident, Bruce never drove. Uh, so riding buses, uh, there are certain themes that come up again and again and it you know you don't want to fall into that trap with like Woody Allen. as you know, I've having written a book about him of, of making Woody Allen the character Woody Allen the man. They're separate, but there's going to be 90 95 overlap
2: yeah i agree with that assessment the only reason why i brought up here specifically is I mean, he has said before that for instance many of the uh you know i instances in the poems uh, they do refer to many of his own beliefs and um uh, granted you know there's always going to be differences right uh and, and that's always uh, important to to keep in mind um maybe we could start uh with uh this with his early life right um there's there's a there's, uh, comments that he's made. I know, for instance, that he was interested in sports, right? Uh, Joe just mentioned that he had these kinds of sensitivities. Maybe we could just say with that for a second. When you say that he was a, a sensitive child, maybe more so than the rest of his family, what exactly does that mean? How, in practical terms, did this tend to play out in the household or in his studies or whatever?
1: Well, again, it was it was an athletic family. My dad played a couple college sports and was always active in athletic pursuits. He was, a, he was a high school teacher, a philosophy teacher, so very serious kind of thinker, but also very interested in the sports. He coached all of us boys through sports. Uh, it was the two younger boys that actually had the real athletic genes in the family. So Bruce and I had more academic type genes, uh, intelligence genes in the and so we didn't partake as much in the sports, but we were constantly involved in sports and and uh, my dad coaching us in sports and that sort of thing. And Bruce played sports through high school. But of the four of us, you know, so then there's a lot of roughhousing in the family and that sort of thing, too. And of the four of us, I think Bruce was the one that would most likely be kind of injured by something or, or otherwise feel like, you know, this is getting too rough and kind of pull back from it. A little bit and by the time he was in ninth grade you know it was the late 60s he was the first of the family to kind of be more into the counterculture stuff uh, i remember it as i you know i was in high school kind of more of a traditional high school kid still at that point not paying a lot of attention and bruce would be saying to me joel you don't get it you know there's this thing going on in the country's head of the charlie wright Greening of america stuff and joel you this year's clueless you know this the world is changing and you don't you don't sense that you just don't pay any attention so he, that's the kind of energy that he had, you know, in, in even before those years in that kind of, in the family. Um,
2: yeah, I, I listened to something that he uh, did with, I believe it was with his church. This was sometime in June of uh, uh, last year. And he said something along the lines of, by the time that he was a teenager, he became pretty uh, rebellious with his parents. Uh, he didn't really elaborate on that, but... Uh, what what exactly was uh was that what, what what form of rebellion
1: well he grew his hair long and he liked marijuana back in those days and uh you know it was just again kind of part of that you know don't criticize what you can't understand from the you know from the mind that i love um sort of sort of attitude i think i think it's fair to say all of we were raised to be kind of you know think-for-ourselves type people. My dad was, was was famous for, you know, kind of saying to his students, you know, you need to think for yourself, not, you know, he'd get himself in trouble actually at school by inviting in, you know, like the socialist professor from the university that almost lost his job And when we were, you know, pretty young. Goose would have only been 10 years old at that time. And so there, it was a family of, you know, kind of liberal, free-thinking kind of people, and, and, you know, make up your own mind. And so all of us, I think, had our forms of rebellion and Bruce certainly did as well.
0: Uh, can I just ask a question? Um, uh, Joel, I know when your father died about 10, 12 years ago, Frank Ario, uh oh, Bruce, good. I remember had shown me uh, some articles. I think he had, I, it, it, it wasn't in his possessions, possessions that Dave sent me, but I think he had like a chapbook or something of, you know, clipped articles, you know, and probably, Forty or fifty articles, as I recall, of his father and people remembering him. Uh, He he seemed to have been uh, a a figure of some esteem within the uh, academic community of the Twin Cities. In in my dad's
1: last year of life, I he knew he was going to die within a year, and I wrote like about six or seven stories about him, and had occasion to talk to a lot of different people about those things. Four hundred people at his funeral. Um, I still meet people that say Frank Ario. He was the first person that really said to me, you know, you need to think for yourself. And I had a, I don't know maybe 200 letters that I went through that he'd gotten over the years from people who said you were the first person who got me to think for myself and so forth. So yeah, a very esteemed person in the in the in the community um, all the way all the way through those years
2: was there uh pro- before we get to the accident and other kinds of turning points in his life was there anything so, so first of all i assume the accident occurred what in his early 20s uh,
1: 1979 and so he's born in 50. 24
2: yeah yeah so uh, b- before uh turning 24 is there anything else uh significant uh either at the time or in retrospect that you could now uh see a significant whether it's like maybe any kind of budding artistic interests or things that he might say or do um any other kind of turning points pri- prior to this one uh that uh we should know about
1: i don't think so one thing i like to cite is that all four of us boys were like you know homecoming king candidates in high school so we were all kind of you know even though we had different styles of bruce was more counterculture for sure than the rest of us at that time we were all kind of like popular in high school and did well achieved and, you know, Bruce went out to Carleton College and, you know, kind of just general, you know, you would have thought, oh, this is a model kind of family. And and so Bruce's kind of bout with mental illness in, in 1979 was the first kind of time that the family sort of, you know, was a little bit of a blow to kind of all of a sudden that family where everything seemed to go well for everybody, all of a sudden there's a little bit of trouble there. So so I were there signs before that of anything like that? I don't really... I think it would be hindsight that would be making stuff up to say that. I don't really see it. Well,
0: can I just uh, uh, was there any sign or any history in the family of mental illness or dr- uh, drug or addictive personalities? Because Bruce, what was Bruce an addict or a, uh, alcoholic before the accident, or or that came after? Uh,
1: yes, I think there's a, there's addiction issues through the family. I mean, this, the family history would be that on my dad's side. His dad was a pretty bad alcoholic and there was some you know sort of a family abuse issues in the in his childhood um with and his dad left for Alaska when you know he was young um and uh and then in my mom's side um you know her father also pretty bad alcoholic for years kind of re- reformed himself in in his like about mid 60s maybe so both my parents kind of preached this notion of you know we have uh addiction tendencies in the family be careful with those kind of issues and you know i'd say all four all well, three maybe not kevin but three of us have had some kind of you know issues with with addiction over over the years bruce and and my next brother david the most serious
2: so uh in so in 1979 is when he has uh his accident right so uh, the idea is he was drunk driving uh he got into an accident this causes a traumatic brain injury was it specifically from that point on that uh, you guys started noticing something strange about him? Um, did all, all all these issues start uh, occurring like right after that? Did it take a, a long time to really build up? Or, or what exactly did that before and after look like?
1: Well, I was in Boston by that point. So I was not as much in touch or wasn't in touch day to day. Um, and my parents really didn't say much to me and Bruce didn't say much to me over that course of the year from 79 to the spring of 1980. But when, in, in the spring of 80 is when he had the kind of what they called a the psychotic break at the time. And, you know, I kind of rushed home from Boston and it was just, you know, kind of hit me like a ton of bricks that, you know, there was any even any issue. And my parents then said, well, Bruce has been acting kind of weird and difficult since since the fall. It wasn't as much tied to that car accident at that point. That's become kind of the story. But, you know, I tend to believe these things have lots of different kinds of ways, to under roots and so forth. And so it's become kind of the stylized story. It was just that accident that completely changed everything. But but certainly during that year, he started coming home and having different thoughts and challenging my parents more about the way they brought him up, according to them, later. And when I came home, he was definitely in a situation where he was He'd lean into me and talk kind of gibberish at me. Uh, The thing he said, this is, I still remember it. I sucked the life out of Nikki and she gave it back to me in the face, you know, this kind of weird sexual illusion. And he just, he said, Joe, you just have to understand this. And I, you know, it's just like, Bruce, I'm not following what anything you said. So it was really, you know, kind of difficult. And then, but his doctor, Tubner Rhodes, still really overreacted to him. And I remember saying, you know, Doctor, you treat him like this. He's not. You're not going to get to him. And Bruce kind of just willed his way out of that hospital. Basically, they couldn't keep him because he had enough willpower. Just got himself out of there. And from 79 until 83, four years there, he, you know, held himself together. He went to law school for two years in there, made his way through two years of law school, and was kind of, you know, basically doing okay, but it was really clear that there was something wrong. And we all felt, I felt strongly, it was going to be some kind of, you know, break point here that he was just wound too tightly, just kind of angry at the world and so forth. And then he kind of started crashing in the fall of 83. And that eventually led to that incident where he took off all his clothes and ran through the mall of, you know, downtown Minneapolis malls in January of 84. And then that's where he really kind of crashed sort of hit bottom and, you know, then had, you know, a period of kind of recovery and then eventually found his way within a few years there to some programs that kind of got him on the path that he was on of being a writer and, a, you know, both a successful writer and a successful kind of person in the world with his job and leading a mailroom and all that kind of stuff. But but there was a period where he, you know, had crashed, then came back, then kind of crashed again. and and then, kind of put his life together.
0: If I could just ask a couple of questions, Alex, because I, I talked with Bruce about this, and I just want to hear, uh, uh, you know, uh, a different viewpoint. So, Bruce then had the psychotic break. I, I know he, he's he's talked about this and written about this. So, this is public information, or anyone who Google's Bruce Ario or his books that he put out on Amazon by himself. Um, so he he has the the breakdown. He thinks he's like Jesus uh, in the the skyway. Uh, which is an elevated. Uh, just for those who don't know, in the Twin Cities, it's elevated uh, bridges between buildings. Uh, and then he he gets arrested. Uh, he he famously talks about an incident where he tried to drink his own urine. Uh, and then and then uh, one of the things that oddly enough over the years with with emails to me and my wife Jessica and and, and talking with him on the phone or, or, or whatnot, he would sometimes get these odd. He, he wasn't embarrassed about any of that. And I, I, again, this is public knowledge because he's written poems about it. He he always seemed to have a little uh, embarrassment over the fact that he had a fetish for female nylons. Um, and I was just wondering, when you were talking about his, these sort of gibberish things about the sexuality, did, did Bruce always have this kind of alternate sexuality? Because I don't think he was gay or anything like that, but he he was a little bit outside the norm
1: yeah that you know it's interesting because the gay thing wasn't you know it, it's so much different world these days but I, i'm pretty sure bruce would have been you know i mean i think again being from this liberal family i think maybe all of us think you know that uh that they're, they're all genders on a continuum for everybody but we didn't used to express it that way so but if bruce were alive today i think he would feel like yeah you know the idea that every, somebody's all male or all female it's crazy everybody just some combination, and he would have been probably more exploring it back then. You know, that I think that Island thing was part of exploring that. And but that was a you know kind of a thing not to be talked about. I didn't know any of that at the time. I, I've known about it since then, but you know, yeah. And he, 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 there was certainly no talk in the family about, about any a, of that. My dad, only at the very end of his life, kind of was able to disclose that he had been, you know, abused by one of his basketball <laughs> coaches back when he was you know like in eighth grade or something but none of of that was part of what we talked about it was not the world we are in today
2: yeah um maybe we should uh, stick with this topic a little bit since i have some poems uh uh, i guess related to the subject um so it it seems especially later on in in his life uh, bruce was feeling you know very kind of like romantically lonely right he has uh, many poems of Romantic and sexual longing, and um, I, 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 I almost wonder if like this whole kind of nylon fetish has to do with the fact that I, I think at some point he does mention that he's like interested in in women's legs, which is a very common, you know, a male thing. I mean, uh, I assume most heterosexual males uh, find uh, uh, an attractive, you know, pair of legs attractive um but it's almost as if like you know in retrospect i see he's getting progressively more and more lonely in that regard right nylon's become this thing uh, like almost like a symbol of something that uh, he could have but uh, maybe can't right uh, he's uh, he's sort of maybe using it as a stand in for women and he he has this one poem lofting into friendship lofting it into friendship that uh, i think is pretty uh interesting topically especially maybe some of the things in the news now so let me just read it and for the people that are uh uh, doing this video audio podcast if you're watching video you could actually see the poem i'm going to put up on the screen so the poem is lofting it into friendship i may have had designs i don't really know it's all unimportant now because she just wants to be friends i've heard the words before the sound of a yellow light blinking it's warning Friendship, though, that's not bad. It could have taken worse turns. I could be thankful. Friends is where it ends. So uh, the reason why I find this interesting is whenever uh, I see Bruce's uh, poems or the novel, or like even when he's just like talking about women, uh, despite the fact that he has lines like you know I haven't had sex in thirty years or whatever. He never has ever like gotten very visibly bitter or resentful, right? There's a lot of stuff about incels, right, involuntary celibates in the news, right? There's personalities like Andrew Tate that are you know just kind of like fueling this kind of like you know male sex- sexless sexlessness and trying to sort of profit off of it. But Bruce, despite the fact that he very much fit into the category of a man who wants romance and cannot get it. Uh, he continues to be you know totally sensitive right to women uh never ever entitled never you know making any kind of uh, demands right always sort of you know uh, remaining respectful in that regard being totally understanding why you know maybe some women wouldn't be attracted to a man with uh, uh either mental health problems or maybe feels like uh, he can't provide for them in in the way that uh he might be expected to um uh, like, can, can you say anything about his maybe romantic relationships uh, after uh, his his breakdown and and what that looked like? Did he ever have any extended relationships or what? Well, I
1: think I sort of think of that poem as in, to the extent it's literal and related to his view you know, his relationships with women. He definitely, in the last twenty years of his life, kind of bemoaned the fact that he wasn't having, you know, success in finding a companion. He would always talk about, you know, sexual companion and, uh, you know, getting married. He, he, to almost the end of his life, would talk as if, you know, he was going to find somebody to get married to and have that kind of, you know, partner in life. But, But he seemed mostly to end up with women. There seemed to always be women around in the last 20 years, but they were mostly older women, almost like mother figures or something, you know. 15, 20 years older than him, which by then might be 70 years old or something. Um, and so th- th- this just never panned out. But he you know, he spent time on the, some of the dating services for a while, trying to make uh, get companions that way. He visited prostitutes back in the day, you know, kind of thing. Um, so, you know, I, I do think there were issues there. But, you know, earlier, I, I would say not. I mean, he had the normal kind of girlfriends and so forth through high school and and college and i if you ask me does he have any particular problems that way i'd say no other than he was probably you know some girl said something to him he would be on the yeah. sensitive side to sort of over read or overreact to what might have been a you know incidental comment or something you know he was he was always like you know uh, hurt by something that other people might not be hurt by i guess it, is a way of saying um yeah. but i but i, I don't think there's I certainly agree with your characterization that he didn't harbor any kind of deep-seated anger or frustration or something like that that, that, that would, you know, make him an incel or anything close to that. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was generally true, though, for kind of his relationships with everybody, almost everybody at the end of his life. I mean, even more than I really realized that, you know, it's hard to remember a time when Bruce didn't have a generous or, you know, kind kind of thing to say if he was he was quiet a lot of the time he would he'd come to dinners and he'd withdraw after dinner you know he just sort of he could overload him he didn't want to have too much interaction but he but he would withdraw he would not kind of all of a sudden lash out with some I, I don't remember a single time where he just like all of a sudden like we all do just kind of lashed out with some you know un, ungracious comment that just kind of reflected a you know something going on in his life that, that he was upset about.
0: Uh, if I could comment here because uh, I did talk with Bruce in the last uh, well since Jessica and I moved from Minneapolis down to Texas uh, almost 20 years, uh, there were a few women that I know that he dated and met on dating services. and Bruce may have been uh, a celibate for 30 plus years, but he wasn't a voluntar- he wasn't an involuntary uh, celibate because there were a few women that that, according to him, did have designs on him. But Bruce, just as with the the sort of guilt that he had about the nylon fetish thing, there was one woman I remember about five to ten years ago, uh, and I don't remember her name. Uh, but Bruce went out with her for I think two or three months, and I remember one time talking to him, and uh, he, was, he said, "Dan, I, I just I just can't see myself with her," and I was like, "Why, Bruce?" Uh, and he said, "Well, she's big, meaning she was heavy," and. He's like, he's like, you know, I I like to put my arms around a woman and he'd go on, I said, I said, Bruce, and he felt guilty about this. And I said, Bruce, you don't owe that your love to someone just because she might be a nice person. You know, every one of us has been Rejected by someone because of something seemingly shallow, you know, looks. You've got four eyes. You're too fat. You're too this, too that. Dark enough skin or whatnot. And I said, you know, if you don't feel something, you you you, you know, don't stay with this woman. Dating her, giving her false hope, when you don't feel something for it. And you know, he would be like, Yeah, I know you're right, but you know. And he he had that kind of thing to shrug, to shrug it off. And there were a couple of other women, I think, here and there that he also probably could have pursued something with again as uh, uh, Joel said they were his age or maybe a little bit older so it wasn't going to be uh, having a family or, or you know the nuclear family thing but bruce could he, you know he could have gotten uh, he could have ended his celibacy uh but you know he had his own standards that still gnawed at him uh, i guess
1: just to be clear, he he never talked to me and to my knowledge to my brothers about being celibate, and yeah. I, I my sense I I thought that line was probably not true that he's not had sex in thirty years that would fit in what Dan said that he sometimes says things that aren't true like he would feel like I never had sex that I wanted to own up as the kind of sex I would like to have but I'm I suspect he did have sex and not just with busties, but other you know, people that he dated, too, because he was active in those dating services. So I, I suspect he did have more of a sex life than maybe that, certainly than that comment suggests. But I don't know. I just know that when he talked about women, he was talking about finding a life partner that he couldn't get that. And he, but he never talked about it in terms of, I can't get sex.
2: Yes. So, uh, and also just commenting on uh, the whole uh, visiting of a prostitute's part of his life. Uh, I believe he said at some point that he lost his virginity to a prostitute. Um, I'm not sure if I'm just sort of like uh, reading into it somewhere else, but that's my understanding. And he has this poem, right, that deals with perhaps some of this guilt. Now, he doesn't explicitly (laughs) state that this is about visiting a prostitute, but, um, you know, piecing together a you know, bits of his biography, I guess you could figure it out, and also some clues within the poem itself. Uh, It's titled, Waltz In, Waltz Out. Sometimes you hardly know you've been there, except you've got a receipt, and there's a chunk of your watch gone. But down the road you remember, could be the fragrance that gives it away, and you wonder if it matters. There are no pictures, no tape recordings, you're sure no one will know. But you know better the long hard night has just begun right so i guess that speaks to uh some of the guilt he feels i'm not sure if this is uh guilt related to feelings of like you know uh maybe he feels that prostitutes in general are an exploited class of people maybe he simply felt that there was something uh unduly transactional right uh here especially since um you know he had this like budding sort of uh interest in in religion uh or maybe it was like something else altogether but uh you know there is the guilt right it's there uh he does talk about it uh, somewhat differently in city boy where um it was almost as if like he was responding to this idea that you know all these people want you to feel guilty about it uh but in fact you know he he was at least the, the character in city boy says something like uh, but you know, I respect these women and I enjoy my time with them and I do view them uh, as people, right? Uh, Maybe that doesn't necessarily placate uh, the feelings of guilt, but there's also perhaps that that other side of it, right? I mean, it is kind of a a complex thing to think about, especially in light of the religion, right? I mean, most uh, Christians, I would assume, would be much more traditionally uh, guilty about this. They wouldn't have complex feelings about it. They probably would have fairly simple feelings about these experiences, but um, uh, not Bruce in this regard. Um, So one last thing, Uh, I I did find uh, interesting how uh, uh, around the time that he received this brain injury, he told Dan in the conversation they had six or seven years ago, something like, uh, people started telling me that right after the injury, That's when I started saying weird things. And what he characterized weird things is the following. He said, first, I started talking about Jesus. And the second thing that he mentioned was, uh, I started uh, talking about how unjust the world was and all the things that were wrong with it. And I found especially that second part kind of interesting to hear because You would think that a person that is, in fact, uh, well adjusted to the world, right, and is, in fact, sensitive to what's happening in the world, they would, in fact, have these feelings about the world, right? They would understand well, there is very clearly any number of injustices. We should be thinking about them, we should be talking about them um but uh, uh i guess the way that he was describing it was it was almost a, a kind of negative now and you also mentioned that, that that's when he started like telling his parents you know there's all these problems in the way that you raised me um so was there this kind of like uh, uh kind of like uh, uh, i guess raised stakes in terms of how he felt about the world soon after the brain injury like was he did he suddenly become like for instance like much more political not not in the terms of like you know a democratic party activists or anything like that but just having these very strong feelings about the way things are and uh either trying to change them or just having you know emotional responses to them
1: yeah there's no question that in retrospect that kind of fall when he had the car accident seemed to have been a, a pivotal point where his, his, his... Sense of things got very vivid in his inner. I think of it as his inner life in a Jungian kind of way that he just kind of started having a really vivid inner life that just kind of th- you know was constantly threatening to sort of overwhelm him and and uh, you know he he he's, he kept that all his life. He'd say, you know, I could get into that more about the angels or about Jesus or about Dylan or about Nikki. N- Nikki, by the way, this the idea that he lost his virginity to a prostitute seems. Uh, extremely, I'm, me. I'm pretty sure he was having sex back in like ninth and tenth grade when everybody was in in his kind of part of the culture, the counterculture. I'd be shocked if he wasn't having sex when he was at Carlton. Those years, I was at Saint Olaf across the river. You know, so I, I think these things in the prostitutes all started later, as far as I know. So, I, so I think he again would you know it's probably was fairly normal childhood and all those kind of ways until he had this. And then he started getting really vivid on these things and he no doubt was fixated. There's a particular woman who she she and I worked in the same place. I know her she's an a stunning person, you know, that that um that I he had a you know very intense sexual relationship with right around that same time. And somehow in because of the car accident it all connected to her. So he talked about Nikki still to the end of his life in ways that you know she just was one of those made a deep, deep impression on him. And I think, you know, I think he wanted to keep that relationship and she was, you know, the kind of person who probably had, you know, three or four boyfriends at a time always um, sort of thing. So I just this didn't work that way for him. But but anyway, yes, he got more and more vivid and religion was a big part of it. Certainly the political thing was very much a part of it. Kind of everybody in the family, except maybe my youngest brother at various times. But well, most of my life's been around, crusading around various political things. So, you know, it's just the whole kind of family oak. And so he had that deep in him. But, but he would always take these things to just a deeper level. So his religion involved, like, you know, we'd have to tell him, Bruce, you can't, you know, 10%, even 15% of your money to the church, that's fine. But not 50% of your money to the church. That's too much. You can't give that much away of your money. You just get carried away in those kind of ways in some years. And the politics, too, the way, yes, Bruce, it's totally right. I totally agree with you that this is an extreme injustice, but, you know, you can't just obsess about it. You know, you got to move on. Kind of that, all of that was the, was kind of part of the theme here. And it all just got kind of, you know, and it spun out to the point where he just kind of lost the, I feel like in some basic way, he lost the connection between his inner feelings about all this stuff and his ability to have a outer light that's connected to other people in a, more normal way and you know kind of that all snapped for him in some you know some way i sort of put all these things in that kind of context more than i do like it was a particular brain chemistry kind of issue
0: uh i just want to ask joel something um in i i, I did the selected poems and then uh, when i got the, uh, i still got bruce's stuff right back here uh uh when i got the the pc of his that i had someone go in and i got uh, some other poems and, and stuff too, later poems. Uh, uh, and in some of the later poems, he speaks about 40 years ago, uh, he met a couple of Satanists and there are about three or four poems that he really rips into a woman and another man. And mm-hmm. he ends one of his poems about, you know, some blah, 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 and with, to the woman, sometimes he's just got to dump them. And so it that, that sounds like that might be this Nikki woman.
1: Yeah, Nikki, I, I know because, I you know, I, I, we both worked at the same restaurant
0: in downtown Minneapolis at different times,
1: and her mother was my boss, and she was around, and so I just, I have a very vivid image of her still. The other guy, Bert, that he was talking about as the devil, he would always talk about Bert was the devil, and that was some bartender the you know, it's the Radisson Hotel in downtown Minneapolis, um, and I don't know who Bert was, whether it was a real person or a composite or what, but he but. You know, Nikki was this sexual obsession of his, and Bert was this devil obsession of his.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember that from uh, City Boy now that you mentioned it. I remember there was like some scene about, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, this man was the devil. And, and the interesting part was that I think in City Boy, uh the narrator doesn't even get explicit about what made him the devil it was just this kind of you know it was just kind of this thought that possesses you and you just kind of go 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 with it right um and within the logic of uh whatever's going on in that you know mental space it seems you know it seems logical right it's this kind of this idea of like a totally logical lunatic right it's maybe built upon an edifice of illogic but uh when you get to the specifics right you could sort of make the details coherent whatever way that you wish and it seems sensible um
1: just say, say one more thing about that i could imagine the sort of scene being that bruce was totally enamored with nikki and kind of hanging out with her and thinking this was you know the love of his life and Bert was telling them, you know, use it as much as you can right now, Bruce. Just take everything you can get from her because she's going to screw you, you know, soon. And 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 that. And then he would think of her, him, and Bert as the devil in that situation. And mm-hmm. just something about the way those experiences connected to when he had his accident made them like, you know, focal points for a lot of the thinking that he did over time and the way he expressed himself. And you know, he just channeled a lot of that really to kind of energy into some pretty amazing writing throughout his life but some of those focal things were back at, at the time right around the afternoon
2: so I I want to ask about uh his uh I believe it was a six month period of homelessness uh a few years after uh the brain injury um I assume he was already sort of like in yeah he was in into drugs at the time and he said that he was using his spare money to just buy alcohol so uh, I, I guess like two parts of the question. The first one is what exactly uh, precipitated the homelessness? Was it drug abuse? Was it uh, a, a lo- was it a uh, mental woes? Was it a loss of a job? Was it all three? And second, uh, did he try to just keep this a secret from his family? Because you mentioned, for instance, that you were you know already in Boston at the time. Maybe you weren't really in contact. Uh, I can imagine you know someone like Bruce, especially if he has these kinds of like strong moral opinions maybe he might feel it's an imposition to you know tell anyone about his homelessness especially his family um you know so uh I, at least that's how i'm imagining it so uh, what exactly are the details on that
1: well so that was the fall of 83 so we're a couple years later he's that's when he's supposed to be in his third year of law school and he's just you know things aren't hang, hanging together and kind of by that point you know there was enough talk in the family that, you know, Bruce was definitely struggling, and we all felt after he came out of the hospital that first time that that doctor had sort of created a clash of wills, and Bruce had kind of toughed his way through it, but he wasn't going to be able to tough his way through his whole life. It just wasn't who Bruce was. It probably wasn't who anybody could be with the set of issues he was dealing with, and so he just kind of would try to maintain, but then kind of fall back, and, you know, by the fall of 83, you know, my mom was saying, you know, Bruce is in a lot of trouble. And I still, you know, I talked to my mother every Saturday morning for like an hour at that time. And all those years that I'm in Boston, but I'm talking to a lot of the conversation back then was about Bruce, but she was definitely soft pedaling it to me too. Because after Bruce died, I get the file now that my mother had of like what went on that fall. And it's just, really excruciatingly painful to read through my mom's note She was just, you know, Bruce is not going to make it. What can I do? And she's checking with this doctor and that doctor. Can we get him committed? No, you can't get him committed. Can he commit himself? Can he get on sub- some sort of subsidy? Just like a mother just agonizing over her child, lost child, trying to figure out how to help him and having every sense that he was not going to kind of get through this by himself. He needed help, but you know, he wouldn't take it from my parents. He wouldn't take it from anybody else. And then, you know, it was three months later. So that whole fall was probably just hellish for him. He, for a while, he was sleeping, you know, over at the U. I mean, they were kind of letting him, you know, was just former law student who's gone crazy now. And, you know, but he's trying to sleep in like the classrooms and just leave him alone. And then they decide, well, no, we can't do that. So they told him he couldn't be there anymore. Just all kinds of stuff like that going on. And then eventually, you know, these predictions came true and he, had, takes off all his clothes and runs through the, you know, had elevated uh, uh, walkways as Dan described them, you know, and and uh, gets a, gets arrested. And he describes himself as, you know, I was trying to, you know, show the people of the world, uh, you, know, would, uh, uh, you know, that you uh, know that we can all be free. Or you know, those kind of words was what he was using at that time. And they got punched in the jaw in jail that night, and kind of, you know, all broke his jaw, and it was just a, it was a horrible period. And then, he, he, but out of that, he finally did meet somebody who was a good a good enough counselor to get him into treatment. And from that point, it was a fairly steady path, as I understand it, I'm sure, not as steady as I think it might've been to getting into TASS and becoming, you know, like a successful rehabilitated person who who was the poster child for TASS for the last 20, 30, was well, from the fall of like 88 or so. He was like, you know, he spent his time going around locally and nationally Talking about mental health and how the police should deal with people with mental health crises, and just all kinds of things. And he, you know, ran a mailroom, you know, staff, and you know, he. I mean, Bruce is the hardest one to see when I come home for. You know, I've, I've always lived away from Minneapolis, you know, and he was the hardest one to see because while I can't do it that day because I'm at church, and then I got my karate lessons, and then I'm running the, you know, the store, the that, used clothing store, the charity. He was just running a full, he ran 10 marathons in that period of time from the early 90s to the mid 90s, early, late 80s, to mid 90s. So he's just kind of active and just doing stuff and then writing a lot. I didn't realize how much he was writing. So, so you know, that's kind of the arc of all that.
2: So, so the period of homelessness uh, ended specifically when he got arrested for like indecent exposure and got essentially committed. Is that what it was?
1: Yes, yes. I think okay. uh, and he did, he never did get committed because he voluntarily then went in. So that was part of the dance in the courts was, you know, he had to uh, agree to things so that they didn't have to involuntarily. Yeah, because the laws are still well, we still wrestle with that, right? The mayor of New York still have trouble now like, can it, should you take people off the street or not take people off the street? Um, mm-hmm. It was just tough to figure out what to do back then. But I, I again, I don't think it was as much as it was a six month period it was completely homeless. I think it it probably was before that to some to some degree i mean he he did mostly have apartments but the, that year that first year right after the accident he was saying more crazy stuff to my parents and would leave the house sometimes i think at night and they weren't sure where it was going and whether he had a place to sleep or not
2: mm-hmm. okay i see um so i'm I'm not uh, sure how much more we have on bruce's uh life specifically but maybe we could talk about uh the uh arts and uh, uh just mental health issues in general so w- w- what i don't want people to get away uh from this conversation is you know this, th- this is this a very common idea right in the arts and art criticism where uh mental illness and creativity just are supposed to sort of naturally go hand in hand one thing that I really appreciate about Bruce's approach to all this, and even when we did a, a show together a year, a year or two ago, um, he even emailed me afterwards and he was like, all right, I, I want uh, you to at least you know, put a note somewhere so people understand that my interpretation of mental illness is that it's something that is overwhelmingly negative, right? It is something that does not necessarily fuel creativity. In fact, it's the opposite. You have to if you have voices speaking to you, for instance, and they're telling you things that are outside reality, you have to be strong enough to understand that, no, this is outside of reality. They're trying to either get me to do something that is harmful to me or to others. Uh, they're trying to get me away from my best self. Um, at the same time, uh, it also, it's also kind of hard to deny the fact that uh it, it, so in Dan's introduction to the selected poetry of of Bruce he says something along the lines of uh you know if it wasn't for the brain injury it's very possible he would have never actually become a poet right and specifically in that instance it's not so much that it's you know mental illness in general that would be leading to uh, uh arts it's just that in his case That is one of those I mentioned earlier, these like random variables that ultimately create an artist, right? Like when I look back into my life, right, I can think any number of random little things could have been different and I probably would have never been interested in writing, right? I would have never discovered Dan. I wouldn't have cared about the arts, right? That's very, very possible. When you look at, um, you know, maybe some of Dan's own experiences growing up, I'm positive that they, you know, very much uh, forged uh, at least some of his approach, to the arch, right? Especially that part of Dan that is very insistent on there is a good, there is a bad, and we have to be able to adjudicate in between, right? This is why he was so often, uh, you know, on the side of Bruce and championing him um, because you know he he sees that value in it, and you know perhaps that has to do with the uh, Dan's upbringing in the you know a very difficult kind of environment where the stakes of actually you know, expressing yourself and and offering something to the world look very, very different than, for instance, if you're merely an academic poet, right? Where it's like, you know, it's, it's a little bit different, right? There's like less native sort of, you know, masculinity or like those classic masculine demands. So, um, you know, when we think about uh, his uh, mental health issues, uh, I think it's useful to view them as it's a, a, a random variable among any number of random variables that perhaps pushed him over the edge and got him to maybe view the the world a certain way. Perhaps it really sort of enhanced his uh, moral critique of the world, that kind of thing. Uh, maybe that turned out to be important for even getting him to write in the first place, right? Uh, if he didn't have these difficulties, maybe he would have just taken the path of least resistance. And uh, I, I believe he wrote a poem along these lines, right? And again, we don't even have to necessarily say this is biographical to Bruce. You could think, you know, this might apply to other people, maybe it's from someone else's perspective, but I think the idea remains. Uh it's titled Tugging Sweet Chain of Events Which Could Have Blocked My Dreams Has Dropped Blossoms to My Mind, Opened to a Tumble of Emotion That Submerged Until I Came Out the Other Side it left me seeking brightness sturdier footsteps se- sequential until i wanted galaxies um and i mean i i can't help but think you know uh that uh specifically for bruce this this uh you know sweet chain of events which could have blocked my dreams could very well be you know everything from the homelessness to the mental ills or whatever uh but you know if if this is a poem written by anybody else right um you know, this could re- refer to something else altogether, right? But, but uh, I think that commonality is is important to think about. Um, I'm not sure if Joel or, or Dan have anything to say about that yeah, specifically.
0: I've I, I, I got plenty to say, but it, it, let, let Joel get it out of the way first before I go on a rant.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think the, his life experiences is, is what drove him, and the the vividness, and and you know, the consequentialness, I guess, of you know, he had. I mean, I think, you know, as he said before, he, he sort of grew up thinking, you know, go, law, go to college, go to law school, but just become a kind of successful lawyer, good middle class family, and all of a sudden he's in a different world. All of that, you know, kind of upheaval became the fodder for what he then turned into a different kind of life. And a very important part of it was the, the writing that he did. It's, it, it is interesting in the family, you know, it's like we didn't talk about, I mean, I wish I'd known more of this when, he was so alive because he wouldn't really talk about it very much. He would send us all of his stuff to read, not his poems as much as his novels. I mean, he did his city boy's the major one, but he wrote several other novels too. Um and and you know, but we none of us we're not a particularly artistic family other than him, and so we, we didn't pay that much attention to it. But there's there's I think he he channeled a lot of his energy into that and all these experiences were an important part of that.
0: So I I when thinking about bruce and uh, you know i wrote a basically a book 43000 words a, a novella length book about bruce's poems comparing him to 20 25 other poets of different stripes i think i think bruce and his mental ills are inextricable uh for this reason in that uh unlike someone like i mentioned henry darger for anyone who doesn't know what Joel is no Henry Dodger was a guy who lived. Uh, he was a janitor. He lived about seventy years. Uh, this in the early nineteen seventies. He had been a, he had been a, a, an orphan. He had gone. He had been sexually abused as a child. And people, when they found him afterwards, found his apartment disheveled. But they found this huge book of where he uh, he wrote these the, a so-called book uh, about little girls with penises and. Uh, he, he, he would do doodles uh, that copied from magazines of the 20s and 30s and 40s. And people were think, oh, this is great found art and whatnot. But I actually read some of the stuff and I saw some of the doodles. And there really wasn't any creativity other than putting stuff together. This was clearly someone who was not there uh, intellectually. And he couldn't make great art. Bruce could make great art. Bruce had the foundation of, of the intellect. And I think what happened was uh, his accident or his mental ills or the combination of the, those things in those few years gave him a parallax on life different. You know, I, I said to you the other day, Alex, that Bruce is almost like a Marvel superhero and that if he hadn't had the accident, he probably would have settled down. He, he would have pursued his dream. He probably would have found a woman to marry, to have a couple of kids. Uh, have a job, maybe if he if he gotten through law school, but once that was all kiboshed, once life put that, Bruce is left adrift, and it afforded him a freedom to look at life and think it th- think of things in a totally different way, and that's one of the things that separates great artists. It's not it's not that Bruce had mental ills. Bruce is a great poet. That's the important thing. Whether. You know when I and when I go around talking to other people, hopefully in the next year or so or on different shows like this for their different YouTube channels or whatnot. Number one, Bruce was a great artist, a great poet, and then secondarily a great novelist because the poetry is the meat. I mean, uh, he invented a form. I, I mean, I gave it the title, the the name of an aerial, but he invented this this prose form, and I I, I can't conceive that he would have done this had he been happy it was i think this restlessness this sense of loss the sense of needing something in, whether it's jesus or art or, or whatnot this is what this is what connects bruce so he's a great artist but he but but you know that he did this with his mental ills is the thing that's mind blowing um and uh you know i i uh, I mentioned some of the things about Bruce earlier with his guilt about the nylons or the woman who was obese or, or whatnot. And uh, I, think, I think Bruce is a, an archetype example of the difference between happiness and accomplishment. When I would talk to Bruce, there was always a sort of sighing resign to the fact that he was never going to have the typical, you know, uh, uh, nuclear family life. But by the same token, what life took away from him on a personal level, it gave him the impetus and he created it, but he, the opportunity to, to give back to society in a way that 50, 100 years from now when people are saying, well, you know, Emily Dickinson and Bruce Ariel, you know, poets who are different, he will be thought of in that vein. And, and I want him to be thought of in that vein, because quite frankly, I think he's a better poet than Emily Dickinson, but that's an argument for another show. But I hope you're right. By the way, I,
1: I would love to have that be part of the aerial legacy, but you know, we'll see.
0: Yeah, and um, uh, so I think you know one of the things uh, you know when people talk about you know they only want their kids to be happy. I'm sure, I'm sure all of Bruce's parents, uh, his parents and his family wanted that for him, but it's better that I've always said it, you know that's a, a selfish view of life. It's better that you give something back to society, and I think. The things that Bruce went went through were were a boon for the rest of the people that that he worked with, that that uh, at the church that he went to. Uh, you mentioned Tasks Unlimited, the United Methodist Church in in uh, of Hennepin Avenue, I think it is. Uh, and this this basically transformed Bruce into someone who was conven- from from someone who was conventional and and wanting conventional things to someone who was in the the actual. You know, most definitive uh, term. He was non This isn't to say he was the greatest poet. It wasn't not to say he's, uh, City Boy is the greatest now. But there is no one like Bruce Aereo, and there never will be because he has his own little corner of the universe in these two books that I've edited of almost six hundred poems. That there, there's not there's no one like he isn't just like uh, a lot of these people who you know they have this that or the other thing wrong with them. Or they play up for sympathies uh, because of they're from this group or from this religious group or or whatever it might be. Um, uh, Bruce Bruce is first and foremost a great poet and great writer, and secondarily he's an he's an you can he'll probably become I think an avatar of mental ills if he, his reputation can get out there. They will say, well, if a man who had you know all the things we've listed that went wrong in his life if he can come and do this you know people say well can't you be like bruce ario and i think that's one of the things that's important but it's not nearly as important as he's a great artist first and foremost
1: So you, you captured a lot there that i think is so true it reminds me again what you are your product of your parents in a lot of ways and. My dad would have all preached exactly the same thing about you know life is not about happiness it's about service and doing using your talents to to better the world accomplish things you know my mother would also say well you could have been a very successful business guy but that's not what he wanted to do he wanted to you know be a pastor or be a teacher and he was too liberal to be a good pastor so he had to be a teacher and he spent his life dedicated to accomplishing things in that world and so I think Bruce would have been like, yeah, OK, got doubt some some cards here that are pretty tough, but I'm going to take my talents and use them to accomplish something. And, and you know, so, yes, I think he he would feel, well, as year as literary executor, he felt well captured by that kind of that kind of way
0: you described what he did. And you, you don't have to judge Bruce on a curve, too. Uh, and that 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 goes hand in hand with what I just said about about Bruce being an artist for us and a great one uh, is that. Uh, again, it, 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 the mental illness, the struggles that he went through, that's just a little bit of elucidation for someone who who is going to be captured by, by the poetry. Because someone who would look at a book of his, you know, someone 50 years from now goes through the stuff I went through and puts together a new book. And, you know, sometimes it takes 25, 50, 80, 100 years for someone to get their due. But when they do, it the, the, the attention that, that will be gotten for Bruce and his writing will be because of the writing the rest of the stuff makes for interesting fodder uh but that's what it is it's secondary
2: um I I don't have anything else to say I'm not sure if anyone has any uh closing remarks yes I do I do I do want to get
0: on record I told you uh in in uh, putting uh, sending Bruce's book around to about twenty or so people that over the year, years I've interviewed regarding poetry, I was looking for people to get blurbs, and I've got one from Don Moss, a friend of his, of Bruce's and mine. Uh, and there's a, a couple of other people that I've interviewed that said they will. So hopefully, once I get that in the next month or two, hopefully I will uh, I will uh, be able to release the book with two or three blurbs. But I wanted to read an email uh, from someone who I asked. To to give a blurb and who refused to and and I want to do this because I want Joel and people uh, who don't understand the arts to be able to see the kind of thing that Bruce and any artist of merit, but especially Bruce, uh, is up against. Because I do meant I, I'll read my email to the person. I won't give his name and I won't uh, uh, say who it is. But I want I want it's important that 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 this is understood. So I sent this email to to twenty or more people, and so I say. Uh, A few years ago, you did an interview with me, and I know you have an ongoing interest in all the arts, including literature. A few months ago, an old friend, Bruce Ayer, died and appointed me his literary executor. He was a mentally ill man who nonetheless persevered and became a great poet. I don't say such lightly and do not say so merely because he was my friend. I'm going to be putting out a series of his poem books and a novel over the next year on Amazon, and I'm looking for people to read through the poems and... If inclined, say some positive words about the poetry to be used as blurbs. Unfortunately, seeing recommendations is sometimes a better sales tactic than just quality. Whatever meager money made from the sale will go to my friend's estate run by his brothers and will be divided among whomever." So, uh, And then I said, uh, that said, the reason his books are going to be edited and promoted by me uh, is their quality. That he suffered through what he did when alive is germane only to highlight what someone can do regardless of handicap. This book is just awaiting my wife's essay on the unique poetic form, and it has two hundred seventy-six poems. So then I sent a sample of, of the poems from my website, and I said, uh, "If you might be interested in looking over the almost completed manuscript, say for one essay, I'll email a copy to you." I want to get the book online at Amazon early next year. Uh, any positive remarks that are blurbable would be appreciated. Thanks for your time, Dan Schneider. So I got I got you know a number of people who you know said, "Oh, you know it's great what you're doing for him and 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 whatnot," and uh, 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 but uh, you know, I'm too busy, I'm this, that, that. One fellow though wrote back and he said, dear Dan, it's nice to hear from you. I hope you're well. And he says, uh, uh, things have been very demanding these last years and especially of late. I appreciate what you're trying to do for Mr. Ariel and the conviction you have uh, as to his work. However, this is not something I can assist with for a variety of reasons. I have to focus on my own writing and my professional work, which is a standard out. I rarely write critically anymore. Uh, he contributes to certain journals and he's got certain interests. I won't go into that, uh, uh, he said, but the current COVID restrictions are making this extremely difficult. I'm working on a collection of poetry. My sense is that you need a critic or other poet uh, who might be drawn to the work. I remember seeing an interview with Seamus Haney. Seamus Haney won a Nobel Prize for those who don't know uh, in poetry. Not long, not so long ago, but one that was televised back in 95, not long after he won the Nobel Prize, and he was asked About the nomination of great poet and what it might take to be one. I liked his response as well as uh, so much about Haney's work and commentary on poetry, poetics, and the role of the poet. Here's the excerpt, interviewer, does it require a certain arrogance to be a great poet? Haney, I prefer to drop all adjectives from the poet. The noun is itself a mighty one. It's one of the few words that retains a sacred aura even still, and it should be more scarce than it actually is. Uh, It was clear after that final sentence that Haney sensed he was on shaky territory with implying the Appalachian poet might be too readily applied, but I think he's right about the specter of greatness. For all that, we know there are poets transformed of the genre who change how we conceive of poetry. I don't know if Mr. Arias is such a poet, but I wish you all the best in your endeavors. And now that sounds like it's a a nice one. And I, I wrote back simply, Bruce is much better than Haney. Thanks for the reply, Dan. And, now you might someone who, who doesn't know the context might think that that well then he was being nice and, and what no he was being passive aggressive because the implication was when i stated uh uh that bruce had suffered from mental illness and i only put that out there simply because because uh it's part it's part of the whole bruce area story uh uh and since bruce was a white male you have to sometimes put, you know, these kinds of things out there to say, oh, we don't need another white male uh, in the canon or whatnot. But the whole the, the whole implication of this thing was, I don't have the time to, I'm, I'm a great fan of poetry. I've got my own poetry and I'm going to talk about, and using th- this other poet, Seamus Haney, to basically uh, be condescending. It's a nice tactic that uh, people sometimes use to 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 say what they want to say, but they don't want to actually say it. Uh, and you know, if you read between the lines there, it's basically well, you know, good luck with Bruce there. And you know, he, you know, you've got your little project there, you know, you know, you're helping your friend who who's, who had some issues or whatnot. But this is this isn't the thing that an academic uh needs to get involved with. But of course, an academic, you know, is the perfect person that could, could boost Bruce's uh uh profile as a poet within poetry if they got behind it. But There are two things that go unsaid here. One is is what he's really saying is he doesn't have the ability to critically judge Bruce's stuff because what happens, and we've talked about critical cribbing before, Alex, is critics like to just say the things that other critics have said rather than express their own opinion. And the second thing is he doesn't, doesn't want to stick his neck outside of academia because of people like this Henry Darger that I mentioned, because one of the things about Henry Darger is that after the initial blush and he had a documentary made about his life in the early O's, uh, people have gone to say, well, yeah, well, he there were things about him and his writing, it's not good, and it left some egg on some people's faces. So this this fellow basically doesn't want to stick his neck out in the possibility that Bruce area could be the next Emily Dickinson or the next Walt Whitman or someone who, who went undiscovered. And this is the kind of thing that I know Bruce and I talked about many times at the Uptown Poetry Group in our private conversations and in conversations on my Cosmoetica e-list over the years. And so, uh, one of the reasons that I, uh, other than the fact that Bruce is a great poet and I knew him and loved him as a person and a friend, he's, he's got, he's up against it because, you know, uh, if if Bruce were black or if he were a lesbian or if he were uh, some other uh, more charitable, and more more uh, uh, well uh, thought of minority group, it wouldn't be as difficult. But because Bruce is a white male, and the only thing wrong with him was that he had some mental ills and whatnot, and there's still this idea that oh, he's got men- he, he he just has to work through it, kind of thing. Um, this this is this is what Bruce is up against as an artist. Uh, and one of the few good things, though, is with Bruce being dead now, is that that uh, some of those kinds of biases will give way, and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, his his reputation, his, his his art will be the thing that stands out. But I just wanted to, to, to put that these are the kinds of things because when I went through when I went through Bruce's uh, PC, there were hundreds. Uh, of uh, rejections from agents that talked in the same condescending manner as what I just read from that fellow. And over and over and over and over again, this is the kind of thing that leads to frustration. It also is an ill in society in that we don't want to uh, you know, put new stuff out there unless it's politically correct. Like we'll talk uh, later about this uh, sight and sound great film list, Alex. But I, I just wanted to put that out there again, uh, that that this is this is the kind of thing that Bruce I know uh, and he even wrote I think a few times back to agents and to, to publishers where he sent his book uh you know asking questions about stuff and I am and looking I'm looking at the the interchanges between them I'm like Bruce you know Bruce didn't realize he was being you know patted on the head uh by by these people and this is what led him to uh self-publish uh his book there which is another story but uh you know, it cost him probably, a, from what he told me, a, a great deal of his own money to publish his own book, and he didn't get anything for it, and uh, whatnot. But these are the things that he's up against. And end of my rant is so I just want want people to know when I talk about Bruce or I talk about any great artist that I've known, I I'm the kind of person person I look at the arts as a contact sport. You know, if you want to, if you want to, you know, if you want to get down there in the trenches to use football terminology. You know i'm gonna push back just as hard as you're pushing to get my quarterback you know so anyway well, uh,
1: I just, uh, one last thing and i'll be yeah. real brief brief on this is you know i del- definitely wanted bruce's mental illness to be out there in the way we wrote the obituary the way his service was and so forth this is a part big part of his life um but i think he had a good view of it all which was he did come to terms with mental illness as a disease to some degree like heart disease or any other kind of disease. I think that's a very important way to think about it. <laughs> but he also always had the view that it was more than that. It's just part of him. It's an integral part of a personality. And he always said that his mental illness could not be treated only by drugs. It had he, There was a spiritual dimension to how he thought about the world, that this enhanced for him, and that there was a spiritual aspect to how he lived his life that was influenced by the way, the mental illness. So it had an integral aspect in his whole being that I think is important. And a lot of people do have a difficulty and they kind of want to put it in a box over here and they don't know how to respond to it. And sometimes it's very uncharitable the way they respond to it. But overall, Bruce said, yeah, there's some of that, but there's also, it's just part of who I am. And there's a spiritual dimension to me that's that's, you know richer because of these experiences I've had. So I'll leave with that.
0: Let, let me just end. Uh, Alex is going,
1: we got to get done with this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: just, just, two, just, two, just two more points before we go. One is that uh, uh, I wanted to just point out one of the ironies. Uh, when I went through, when I was able to get into Bruce's or ha- had someone get into Bruce's PC, uh, and I just wanted to ask this about Bruce's death. Uh, he actually, it looks like, bought glazed tiles for his bathroom. And I, I, I have tiles in most of my house they are usually rough that if you, your feet are wet, you know, you're not gonna slip. But glazed tiles are more like glass, hence the glaze. I was wondering, uh, it seems an irony. What did Bruce did die in his bathroom. And I'm wondering if, if getting those glazed tiles, he slipped on them because they were slipperier than what he had before. Uh, do we know anything about uh, his last day there and how he actually yeah, died? All that we know is that probably that
1: Saturday afternoon he slipped in the bathroom and hit his head on the back and fell backwards into the radiator and sometime later died. We really don't know how fast that happened or any of it, uh, but that looks to be what happened because there was never a coroner's inquest There was never, you know, an autopsy or any of that. I mean, frankly, at that point, he was that We didn't care that much about those issues. And so yeah. all we know is that's the most probable thing, but exactly
0: what happened, we don't know. And I just want to say to people who are watching this, uh, There's 576 poems in the two books that I I put as publishable, but I know there's a poem called "What Shadow that Bridgester remembers is the first poem she ever read of Bruce and Bruce didn't remember it. And, And I'm pretty sure that there's probably, Bruce was kind of slovenly in how he kept the things together. Anyone out there who ever encountered Bruce or got poems from Bruce in a magazine or was in the Twin Cities and exchanged stuff with Bruce, if you have any poem, poems uh, that if you buy these books and you, you don't see those poems in there, let me know. Uh, contact me through Alex or Cosmoetica or whatnot, because I'm sure that there probably are a few hundred poems and probably a good percentage of them, 40 or 50 percent of them are good poems or better. Uh, this is an ongoing process. It just isn't. These are the poems. There there are hundreds of poems of Bruce there that were not good uh, and and. There, there are poems out there in someone's folders that that knew Bruce back in 98 or something like that. Contact me, let me know. Because as I said, as the years go by, if someone comes up and, and emails me 120 poems that they exchanged with Bruce, Bruce wrote, for example, a 74-page, a 74-poem book on apples. I, I don't, it Just on apples. I don't, only two of them, them I include in the thing. But literally, he, he wrote about apples uh whether it was apple records by the beatles or apples eating an apple of you know an apple a day kind of thing so anyone out there let me know if you have any uh lost lost bruce ariel poems
2: um and, and right before we say uh goodbye for the patrons uh dan schneider and i are going to uh have a bonus show we're going to be discussing um the the a uh, top 100 uh, the, the recent thing from 2022 the 2022 list from sight and sound right there's a director director's list there is a um uh, a, a critics list we're going to discuss some of those films uh, compare the top film uh to roman polanski's repulsion they're about 10 years apart there should be some interesting contrast there maybe discuss uh uh, russian music some elon musk developments plus a bunch of other topics there's always something to talk about so if you're a patron please stick around and you will get that conversation as well so dan and joe uh thank you for doing this show and for the viewers we'll see you again very soon
1: thank you